0: Page eight of your order of worship. There, as we continue in Acts, come to um, only can be described as a heavy passage of scripture and and thus a uh, a heavy sermon. Uh, but it's but it, it, it is good. It's a good confrontation for the church. So let's give our attentions to it. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, Lord, as we have already sung, we now pray. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Melt us, mold us, fill us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon your people this morning. This is a spiritual act in the work of your spirit. And so we trust you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, we saw in Acts... As we jump back in after um, five months off, we, we saw a uh, major shift in the story. Uh, it was the beginning of opposition, a beginning of the world's opposition to the church. And if you remember, what we saw was actually surprising, which was that uh, the persecution actually um, led to furthering the revolution of the kingdom of God, what appeared to be threatening uh, turned into a blessing. Now, right on the heels of that story is our passage, which is intended to make the opposite point. In this story, what appears to be a blessing is actually incredibly threatening. Far more threatening than the persecution from last week's passage. After looking at external opposition, we now take up the subject of internal Opposition within the church. Unlike Saul, who uh, sought to destroy Christianity, we meet Simon, who seeks to exploit Christianity. And Acts, the book of Acts, views the latter, views Simon as far more threatening to the cause. What do you, what do you who uh, name Jesus, you followers of Jesus, those who would call themselves Christians, what do you view as the greatest threat to Christianity? Perhaps things come to mind like the rise of secular unbelief, depending upon your political persuasion, perhaps the far left or the far right agenda comes to mind, perhaps you think of Supreme Court decisions, militant sexual ethics, perhaps. It's these external threats that come to mind. But according to our passage, and it must be said, reinforced throughout all of Scripture, the biggest threat is not external, but internal. The biggest threat, in fact, may be in this room or listening online. Wolves in sheep clothing among the ranks of God's people who threaten to devour Christianity from within by perverting Christianity into a Christless Christianity. Friends, the ones who have brought most harm to the cause of Christ are those who claim to be followers of Christ. This is true in Scripture. This is true historically. Time and time again, we have proven to be our worst enemy. And our passage is going to force us to deal with that threat this morning. Not the external threat of persecution that we saw last week, but the internal threat of exploitation in the name of Christ. And we're going to look at this Christless Christianity in, in, in two ways. We're going to see the reality of Christless Christianity, so just the fact that it is real and it does happen, the reality of it, and then the severity of Christless Christianity, how severe the problem truly is. Let's begin with the reality. Verse 9, but there is a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. Now, if you remember from last week, the gospel has spread from Jerusalem to Samaria The religious context of Samaria is very different than Jerusalem, whereas um, Jerusalem was predominantly a Jewish religious culture, Samaria was a very eclectic religious culture, and we see that. What the text refers to as magic here would be something uh, akin to voodoo or witchcraft practices, very dark spiritual forces and rituals, and it appears that Simon has kind of gained a cult following in Samaria because of his skills in this. Look how it is worded. Simon amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this is the way this is worded is intentional. You're supposed to see the, um, you're supposed to see that Simon is the center of attention here. It, it says saying that he himself was somebody great, even saying that this man is the power of God. It says twice that he amazed them. It says twice that they paid attention to him. What's going on here is we are being invited into the world of Simon's vanity. And in so doing, we are also meant to be confronted with the prospects of our own vanity. Resist the temptation to demonize Simon here and instead ask if you see yourself in Simon. Now, if you're a sinner, and we believe everyone is, then the answer to that is yes. In some ways, you absolutely can relate to Simon. Because this, what we see here, is the essence of sin. Sin is the desire to usurp God with self. Sin seeks the greatness, the glory, the attention, the worship. All of these things that we see on display here in Simon, sin seeks to appropriate these things which rightfully belong to God. That's what sinners do on a most fundamental level. We want to be God. We want what belongs to Him to be ours. And that's what Simon is enjoying in our passage. Now, it obviously does not have to be magic. I'm assuming I've got no magicians here making a living off of magic. It could be your vocation, your Instagram account, your children's success, your credentialing, your money, your influence. There are countless things you could substitute for magic in this passage to achieve the same end that Simon is seeking. And sadly, one of the most popular means that we implore toward our own selfish ambitions and vanity is religion. What we have read thus far is just a setup for what Simon does next. The problem in the passage is not dark magic or even Simon's vanity on display. The problem is what Simon's vanity does with Christianity. Let's watch it unfold, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, so they are the ones that were previously amazed by Simon. He was a celebrity. He was getting all the glory, all the attention, all the fame. And then suddenly, Philip comes to town, and they believe Philip. And this message of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. But then verse 13 is interesting, isn't it? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And so at this point, the reader isn't really sure what to do with Simon. It says he believed... He's been baptized. He's continued with Philip in some type of discipleship relationship. That's good news, right? I mean, the town magician has become a Christian. But then it also seems to imply that what he was drawn to is the signs and great miracles that are being performed, leaving us wondering, is he just joining the movement because of the power it seems to offer? We don't really know. And the, and the story is told that way on purpose because it's tough to discern the intent and desires of those who name Christ. We'll get to more of that in a minute. Well, the apostles show up and what happens is it becomes very clear where Simon stands. Now, before I get to that, um, I do feel the need to do some teaching here. Because what I'm about to read is very strange. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, this is is a strange passage. And I don't want the strangeness of the next few verses to uh, distract us from the greater meaning of the passage. Because it'll it'll evoke questions. So let me answer the questions so we can get to the message of the passage. What's going to happen is the apostles are going to show up. Um, They're going to lay hands on those who have already been converted and been baptized, these Samaritans so that they can receive the Holy Spirit, which will then be manifested in some ways. We don't know. We're not told perhaps something akin to Pentecost. Now, what's all that about? Well, we know it's not normative um, because predominantly in the New Testament, conversion and receiving the Holy Spirit are one and the same. And reception of the Holy Spirit doesn't typically come in a Pentecost dramatic form. But there are a couple of exceptions in Acts, and those exceptions are intentional. Conversion takes place, and then there is a delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit, and there's a reason for this. Remember last week, I said that the idea of the gospel going beyond the Jews and Jerusalem and into Samaria shattered expectations. They did not see that coming. Well, so surprising was the development that the apostles were actually sent to Samaria to investigate this. What is going on? We're hearing stories that Samaritans are believing So the apostles come to check it out. Could it really be true that Samaritans are being converted, that Jews and Samaritans and soon Gentiles would all be a part of the same family of God's people? It's impossible to overestimate how unexpected that idea was. And so there are a couple key moments in Acts where God ensures that the apostles see for themselves in an unmistakable way that yes, the Holy Spirit is for Jewish converts and Samaritan converts and Gentile converts. Literally, they had to see it to believe it. And so God makes sure they see it. So that's what's going on in these odd verses I'm about to read. Now, theological lesson aside, let's get back to the greater mess of the passage. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent sent to them Peter and John. So Peter and John are coming to check it out. What is this? Samaritans are believing. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, that is the Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And there it is, right? It would seem that nothing has changed with Simon, only that he has found a new mechanism to support his narcissistic habits. He's found a new trick. He views Christianity as something to be exploited for his own vanity and fame and power and influence. Simply put, Simon doesn't want to serve Jesus. He wants Jesus to serve him. He sees Jesus as a means to his own vanity. Now, this is huge, friends. Speaking to you who name Jesus, you need to test yourself. This passage is calling on all of us to test ourselves, including me. In fact, I'll go first. I'll start with me. The pastorate is notoriously attractive to those obsessed with their own vanity, it offers so much influence so much esteem, so much authority that it is profoundly alluring to narcissists. And maybe you've had experience with church leadership like that before. It certainly would not surprise me. It's replete. And so the passage forced me to pause in my sermon prep this week and wrestle with that disturbing dilemma. Why am I doing this? Is this for Jesus or is this for me? The glory of Christ and the good of bluegrass, the glory of Robert and the good of his vanity. I had to wrestle with that. Truly wrestle with it. I had to talk to Abby about that. I had to test myself. What about you? Will you test yourself? Simple question. Why are you a Christian? Why if you if you call yourself a Christian, why are you a Christian? Is it because it gives you a self-righteous sense of moral superiority? It will do that. It'll make you feel better about yourself than other people. Is it because it garners the favor of your parents, your friends, your spouse? It will do that. It will do that. It'll get you favor with those you love. Is it because it offers a therapeutic sense of happiness that our culture, our therapeutic self-obsessed culture is looking for? And Christianity will offer that. It will. It will. Is it because it's good for your kids, good for the family, good for the marriage? Is it because it fits a a conservative American patriotism, meaning to be a good American is to be a Christian, so of course I'm a Christian? Is it because you're addicted to proving yourself through performance and there is no greater performance competition than religion? Why are you a Christian? That answer on an ultimate foundational level must begin and end with Jesus. If not, then speaking lovingly but candidly, your Christianity is a Christless Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Jesus cannot be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal but as a road, not as the end but as a means you are not really approaching him at all. If you're approaching Jesus not as an end, but as a means, then you're not really approaching him at all. And if you're investigating Christianity this morning, um, I want to apologize that um, within American Christianity, often Jesus has been presented to you as a means and not an end. Make you healthy, happy, wealthy, better life, prosper you, All these benefits of of Jesus, rather than just a Christ-centered, all we have to offer is Jesus. We cannot approach Jesus as a means. He alone is our end. And that is where Peter sternly takes Simon. Let's look now at the severity of a Christless Christianity. Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That is a very, very severe warning from Peter. One of the severest you will find an axe. And what this shows you is just how serious he is taking this internal threat. The reality of those among the fellowship who have some measure of belief who go through the rituals of baptism and discipleship, but their motivation is to exploit Christianity for their own selfish gain and purposes and vanity, that internal reality is far more dangerous to the church than any external opposition. Last week, when the outsider Saul was ravaging the church, killing people, taking them off to prison, sending them off into exile, it would seem as if they were unconcerned if you remember, and they just simply pressed on, proclaiming the gospel. But this week, when an insider, Simon, is threatening to exploit and pervert the gospel, it is met with the harshest, fiercest rebuke, which should tell us something. It's how serious this is. So let's look at his rebuke together. A few things to note. First and foremost, he sees it as a heart issue, saying to Simon, your heart is not right with God. Simon's been baptized. He is following Philip in what would seem like discipleship, and Peter couldn't care less about these external performances. He is intently concerned about Simon's heart. He can tell by Simon's very question that his heart is not right before God. And he also views this condition As a perilous one. He says, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. If possible. What do you mean if possible? Is Peter doubting the ability and or willingness of God to forgive? No, he's doubting the possibility of Simon to repent and plead for forgiveness. Here's how Peter puts his condition For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness. Nobody is more bitter than a Simon. Why? Because though wanting to exploit Christianity for one's own agenda, Christianity never follows anyone's agenda. And so it always ends in a bitterness, a deep-seated bitterness. Back to people like me. I've known narcissistic pastors who seek to exploit the ministry for their power, for their fame, for their affirmation. And the one thing they all have in common is bitterness. Bitterness when things don't go their way. Bitterness when their congregations won't yield to their, their power and, and serve their vanity. Just angry, bitter pastors who often become spiritually abusive. But it doesn't just have to be pastors. Christianity, indeed Christ himself, will never yield what vanity seeks from it. And the more it fails our vain agendas, the more bitter and hardened one becomes with it. So Simon is in the gall of bitterness. And it says the bond of iniquity. Bond as in slavery. Slavery literally imprisoned by his own self-obsession and those chains are difficult chains to break again speaking from pastoral experience those wrapped up in in vanity and narcissism are the least likely to repent it can happen but it's very rare why because to do so Requires they lay down their prideful self obsession, and that level of humility is just too much for the hardened narcissistic heart. An identity of self exaltation rarely is able to yield the self humiliation that repentance demands. And Simon proves Peter's point in verse 24. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That sounds like a right and good response. It means asking for prayer for heaven's sake. But when you look at it more closely, it's just more of the same. Pray that nothing you said will come upon me. That's not repentance. That's fearing consequence. That is a self-centered, not Christ-centered remorse. Christless Christianity and now Christless confession. Simon cares about Simon above all else and the truly penitent care about Jesus above all else. And so it's at this point of this sermon, which is admittedly a heavy, heavy sermon, where it's time to get serious. My suspicion is that all of us see Simon in ourselves. I certainly do. I already admitted that. And that's because we're all tempted by what Simon is tempted by. We all are. Again, such is the essence of sin. And so as I described Simon's condition, and as we examine Peter's rebuke, I suspect many burdened souls became fearful. Is this me? Is this me? Now, first, let me say that's a good thing. It's a really good response. An indication that this is not you. The hardened heart does not respond that way. If there are Simons among us, they're probably not broken or contrite, just more bitter and defensive at a confrontational passage. And rather than asking, is this me, they're wanting to prove that it's not me. So chances are, if you're asking that question, it's a really good indication. But more importantly, diagnostically speaking, is to examine this simple question. What is it in Peter's rebuke that you fear? Simon feared the consequences. What he ought to fear, and what we ought to fear, is the loss of Christ. A Christless Christianity is concerned with self. A Christ-centered Christianity is concerned with Christ. So what is your greatest fear? That question will reveal your greatest ambition. If your greatest fear is the prospects of losing things that serve you, then your greatest ambition is you. If your greatest fear is the prospects of losing Jesus, then your greatest ambition is Jesus. And Christian, I know what's true for you and so does God. The danger of a passage like this is the ones that need to take heed and repent, (laughs) just get angrier. And the dear saints that truly do love Jesus get fearful. So as Christians, of course it's messy. Riddled with impurities, and yes, you have vain ambitions, and yes, you can see yourself in Simon, but at the end of the day, in your heart of hearts, what is discovered is a core love for Jesus Christ. You love Jesus, you really do. You're devoted to Jesus, and not having Jesus is your greatest fear. And guess what? It's reciprocal. Here's another question. Not why are you a Christian, but why does Jesus love you? Is it like Simon, an exploitive love? Does he love you because of what you have to offer him? Does he love you so that he can get something from you? No. You know why Jesus loves you? Jesus loves you because Jesus loves you. And the reason we know that is because you have nothing to offer. In fact, it's not just that you have nothing to offer, you cost everything. You see, Simon chose Christianity because of what it offered him. Christianity is the good news of a God who chose us despite what it would cost him. So once again, Christian, hardened maybe, with an ounce of conviction, give way to it, never... Never considered following Jesus before, wherever you are, just everybody together, behold Jesus. The Jesus who loves you because he loves you. The Jesus who suffers ultimately because ultimately he wants you. Behold your Jesus, his unconditional, unexploitive, unvarnished, unreserved, unstoppable love, and may it remind you once again why you are a Christian. You're a Christian because of Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray. Lord, give us the assurance that we need. Lord, we, your people, confess that, yes, our love is duplicitous. Our love is divided. Yes, it's, it's riddled with impure motives. But, yes, Jesus, we love you. And we want you above all else. And the prospects of losing you is our greatest fear. And now fix our eyes on the sacrament that tells us we'll never lose you. This table promises nothing but Jesus. No benefits to be exploited. No fame to us. No glory to us. No power. Only Jesus. And that is enough. Give us Jesus now. We pray in your name.